All right. Uh, I'm Seth Partnow. This is Colin Shots. I am joined today by uh, my good friend, um, who is my good friend, despite the fact we were just talking about before the show that uh, when he first started applying for jobs in sports analytics, I didn't hire him. I don't even think I gave you an interview, but I'm interviewing you now. Uh, it's Corey. It, it, all, it all comes full circle, huh? Uh, former uh, former uh, head of analytics for Utah Jazz, former founding uh, head of analytics for uh, Austin FC, and uh, still has his fingers in some pies, which we probably won't talk about, but also here to talk some golf analytics, which he does want to talk about. So, Corey, uh, how you doing? Seth, what's up, friend? How are you? Um, it is <laughs> hello, uh, hello, friends. It's that week, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. It is. It is that week, and it's a great week. It's a fun week for. I think all sports fans. I, I mean, coming off of a couple of great basketball games too, so it's a really solid sports week. I think that was a that was a um, an odd national championship game last night. Yeah, I think odd is uh, yeah. a good also, way to put uh, it. But the, it it could not be more perfect that the national title game was decided by three. So after the <laughs> the the epidemic of incorrect assertions that they don't need a three here. The tournament, in fact, ended with the second place team needing a three. You've really created an entire brand out of this this quack two thing, I, haven't you, Seth? I, I just annoys me so much because it's just it's 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 just it's it, it's like not even math. It's just like looking at your fingers. And, and don't they, you don't you hate when your head hits the fruit? <laughs> Like it's that the fruit, it's that the fruit you have to the, people yeah. are actively dodging the fruit at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. it's it, it hurts. Um, speaking of it hurts, uh, um, uh, that's a terrible segue. But so I wanted to because you've had a, you have about as uh, you and Danny Chu have have as close to like <laughs> the uh, the sports like uh, grand slam of different sports you've worked in as possible. So why don't you describe your pathway and where you've been and what you've done and sure what you're doing now yeah um i you know i kind of came i graduated undergrad in 2011 and which i think is the year that moneyball the movie came out and was doing kind of what every econ degree student does in the mid-atlantic and that i was a consultant living in dc um and you know I, i early on in my career doing the SQL and the Python and the, the datas and, and starting to see this stick in places, at least in baseball in the early 20 knots and, um, and saying, well, I, I like these things. Let me, let me see, how do I get into these things? And so, uh, working at FanDuel for a couple of years when it was every, it was probably seven or eight years ago now, every, you know, it was every television commercial was FanDuel or DraftKings at that point. And that was kind of my gateway drug. And then as you alluded to, you know, when you really, when you really care about, you know, kind of what's going on on the floor. Um, and when that's always been my, my father was a college basketball coach, um, at Virginia Commonwealth, uh, in the eighties and nineties. And so it's, I grew up going to his camps and things. And so, you know, the, the wanting to kind of be engrossed into that, you're having as many conversations as you can have on the team side and, and was definitely lucky and lucky enough to end up in Utah for about four seasons with, Dennis Lindsay, Justin Zanuck, Quinn Snyder, you know, all great basketball minds and and better human beings too. And, um, you know, once you kind of have a taste of that and you, and you love it, um, you know, it's, you're going to do it for a long time. Right. And just like you, it's, it's turned into different derivations of it um, for me in my career as well. And having the opportunity to uh, over the last 18 months, um, build uh you know start a an expansion team with austin fc and lay the groundwork there both from a technology standpoint and a data standpoint um and austin is uh, my wife did her graduate school at university of texas at austin and we got married here so it's it's our it's our city that we will be in uh, until they throw dirt on us so um so the chance to come back to austin and then um kind of more recently um having gotten connected with uh, kind of a friend of a friend who plays in the PGA tour. And uh, I'm a, I'm a avid competitive golfer myself. And, and, you know, that actually is, is, has come very much into the mainstream over the last couple of years with strokes gained and things. And so um, kind of taking those things that I, I saw at the, the pro 
team level and seeing if there's a way to kind of make that fit uh, in golf as well. But that's uh, th- there's more we can dig into there. But that's kind of how I got to here today. So before we start to get into the specific sports stuff, um, a question that I, you know, I think anyone who's worked for a team in this, in these roles with any sort of public visibility gets asked often, how do I get a job, dot, dot, dot. And usually um, people are asking me sort of more on the analysis side. And I have my, you know, set spiel that I go to. Um, I think increasingly people are realizing that the more technical, the more engineering side is is almost a more fruitful way to to get involved because it's it's sort of your building skills that are very transferable and in non-sports settings quite lucrative it seems um and you're someone who i've i've heard discuss kind of what that that what people should be doing um to kind of either in sports or just generally kind of the the, the, those those engineering and technologist kind of jobs so uh, the floor is yours for to to lay out your your action plan for a uh, <laughs> say say a, 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 you know what 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 year an undergraduate should the ones be be starting if they're if they're thinking of going down this path and you know lay lay out the lay it out for us sure and I I think the first thing is something that you've probably echoed as well is you know taking a route just to get a job at a team while I never want to discount someone who has that goal or aspiration. I kind of do. Um, <laughs> like I, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, you, uh, that, that's been sort of my, so do you want to work in sports or do you want to work for a team? And you well, know, that, that leads to, you know, you can tell who's actually thought about it. When you yes. That question. You know, and, and the advice I've given to some people over the years is that there's so many unknowns in that if you have an opportunity, if you think you want to, and you have an opportunity to in that, you can interview and you can get an offer um, depending on where you're at in life. It's probably worth doing it. And then if you don't love it, that's fine. Cause again, you have this very transferable skill set that is uh, potentially quite lucrative in the, uh, what I call the civilian space. So, um, so it, it's definitely worth it. If you think it's something you want to, to try out in life um, or in your career, uh, it is unique, right? And it's, it's not a normal nine to five and it's certainly not like a, a tech job would be in other places. But, you know, I think if you take a step back though and look at data teams in general, maybe not even sports, you'll see that um, they aren't just data analysts anymore, right? And whether this is a tech startup or Amazon or or anything in between, um, you know, I, I think you can almost break down um, uh, GitLab is a great company, Airbnb, another one that they they've open sourced like how they run their data teams and their GitLab has an amazing um, resource online that basically lays out their data team, their org structure, their pay scales. I mean, how they interact with their internal customers, everything. And I think it's a great framework. If you're someone who's going to do this at a sports team, I mean, why sports teams are not fundamentally, fundamentally it's an entertainment product. And yes, we're dealing with human beings playing a game on a floor or on a field, but our, data teams, there's no fundamental reason why they should be structured much differently than, frankly, tech companies who do this a hell of a lot better than, you know, you or I were doing it at our very small scale at our respective clubs. And so, um, you know, I look to those as the models and, and the data scientist, the data analyst is always the thing that people talk about. You know, you're building a draft model, you're predicting something, you're doing that. And that's a really key part of the work. Um, but it's only a part of the work. You know, the thing you always say to people, I pull out, I pull my cell phone out of my pocket and I say, if your general manager or head coach can't get what they need on this, then your work's probably not going to get you very far, even if you have the best model in the world. And so I would think about a data team, really not as a data team. I would think about it as, you know, a technology group within a, you know, whether it's basketball or soccer, or whatever sport we're talking about, um, within, you know, basketball operations or soccer operations. And we can look to baseball as our guidepost because baseball is just further up the curve than anybody else in terms of adoption of this stuff. And it, it you know, they're probably split 50, 50, give or take between, you know, kind of engineers and scientists. Um, if we, if we generally group people into that and, um, 
uh, certainly NBA teams are not like that. You know, NBA teams tend to tend to have general technologists, right? Who can who can do a little bit of everything. I know that's kind of the the cohort I put myself into and yourself into, Seth. Where I'm I'm not particularly a web developer, but I've built websites, and I'm not particularly a data engineer, but I've built data pipelines, and I'm not a PhD, you know, machine learning researcher, but I've built models, right? Um, and so you can kind of actually if you think about it as technology and not just data, then it, it's going to touch every part of your organization. So what do you need to accomplish that, right? You're going to need data engineering to, you know, whether we're talking about pulling in your scouting reports or your, you know, second spectrum data or, or your third division Belarus data, right? Like, we're, we're just talking about getting information into a centralized place. Then you've got to store it, cut it up, analyze it, do descriptive statistics on it, aggregate it. And oh, by the way, if we're talking about soccer, uh, this is happening for 50, 60 leagues around the world with your stats bomb data and uh, make it run every night and send me a report of who the new players are, right? That's it's actually not an overly analytical there's no complex modeling there, but there's a lot of tech overhead in a, in a job like that or in a, in a task like that. And so data warehousing, DevOps, cloud computing are all things that, and really good data engineering tools like Airflow and Prefect and DBT, which, you know, if you're in the, if you, if you work in the space, DBT just fundraised at like a $4 billion valuation. They're, they're the next data tech unicorn and I'm in their Slack and their job board is, you know, has a new job, people hiring for that skill set every 30 minutes, it seems like. Um, and so to your point is incredibly lucrative outside of the sports space as well. Um, then you, you, you certainly need your data scientist, your data analyst as kind of a, another pillar of that. Um, and, and I think you probably need two, two flavors of it. You need someone who can be the analyst in the room, whether that's, you know, uh, a draft analyst, a scouting analyst, a coaching analyst. Um, I, I asked somebody at an NBA team the other day, I said, how many college scouts do you have? And, you know, every team is structured a little differently and this, that, and the other. And they said, oh, I think four, if you count, you know, a couple of part-timers, a couple of full-timers, we have about four. And I said, how many uh, college analysts do you have? And he laughed, of course, because it was NBA teams. So they Nobody is a dedicated college analyst, you know, somebody builds a draft model and this, that, and the other. And, and, and so to me, why is there that imbalance still? You know, I, I, the, the ROI of, you know, imagine having a, a data analyst who sole focus is the draft, basically take a Ken Palm and put them at every, why, why would an NBA team not want their own Ken Palm, right? And the, you know, the payoff, the ROI, if you get, something marginally correct every dozen years is going to pay for itself hand over fist from a, you know, from a, a top-down perspective. And so things like that. So you have these analysts that, that should be embedded into the day-to-day -day that really are with the coaches, with the scouts, with your salary cap strategy folks. Um, and then you also are going to want analysts and data scientists who um, can think about the big picture, can think about really complex models can think about, you know, defense is hard to quantify in all sports. Um, you know, eating golf, how can I better, you know, how can I make strokes gained, you know, a better, more accurate metric or something like that. Do, do you have a, a, a defensive model for golf? I want to hear about this. <laughs> this would be, this would be, this would be like, we'd be breaking some real news here. No. Uh, well, it's, we'll get into it. I think a little bit, but the beauty of golf is, is, uh, the data and, and the nature of the sport makes it a really kind of uh, a great environment to do this kind of work in. But uh, you certainly have times when you want to play defensively. Maybe you don't want to attack the course as much. So that, that's probably as close as we get in golf. Right. But you, you do want to create in a perfect world, you'd create space for someone to not be burdened with the day to day of a post game report or a pre-match scout. And they can think about these kind of very complex spatiotemporal, you know, uh, Zeleucian type problems um, to, to try to solve and integrate. And if you can create good metrics, you know, especially proprietary over time and integrate them to your decision making process, you have a 
huge potential competitive advantage there. So, so you have your data engineer, you have your kind of embedded analyst, you have your data science researcher. And I think to kind of round it out, your, your front end, your reporting, your web development um, kind of uh, capability is maybe the most important. Um, I know you referenced it in your book, Seth, and uh, you could take an existing report and just throw lipstick on a pig and immediately you're going to get better buy-in, right? Um, and that is, for better or worse, you know, sex sells and, and it's probably true in data as well in that things that look good and are easy to interact with, you know, if a, if a scout can be in a Real Madrid game and pull up the shot chart of the player they're scouting on their phone, um, that they're going to incorporate that into their analysis. They're going to, it's going to be easier for them to find that information to, you know, hopefully over time, as it just ingrains into the decision-making process. Like when somebody asks, how do we be more data-driven? I actually think the answer has nothing to do with models. I think the answer has everything to do with systems and it's by creating systems that allow you to be more data-driven. Um, and so the web developer, the front end, you know, um, Tegan at Brooklyn is a great example, and she's putting on a great event in the in the summer um, for women in sports tech, um, hosted by the Nets. But you know, people with those skill sets being allowed to focus on that because, like I said, I you know as a general technologist, I can certainly build a website, but it is not going to look as good as someone who builds websites for a living, and so that if you really want to get buy-in and think about a coach, right? If you're trying to get a, a, you know, a report to a coach, making it look good and slick on their iPad that they use on the plane, um, you know, making them not have to VPN, which sounds crazy, but is something I've dealt with. Um, Been there. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, telling your IT department to, to, Hey, don't worry about it, guys. We'll take care of the, authentication but yeah even yeah devops and authentication are things that god nobody tells you about in a data science grad school program but you've probably need a solution for those because if you've got um anthropometric data or player wellness data in your system uh or if you're dealing in soccer and you're dealing in europe you have gdpr to worry about so or or if you're you're building something to uh you know sort of any sort of intelligence or 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 like a call log or something like that if, um, if you have like, your scouting grades in a database, yeah. right, you know, a, a general manager certainly doesn't want. So you've got to handle authentication. And so um, all of those things uh, matter um, to varying degrees and different clubs are at different stages. But, yeah, I think the big picture is that if you want to be more data driven, um, yes, you need the data. But, you know, I would really think about it in those four pillars in terms of, you know, engineering and systems kind of your embedded day-to-day -day analysts, your long-term researchers, and your your front-end web developer, you know, make things look good and work well type of a capability. And I, I, I think my prediction is that using basketball, because it's, it's kind of our commonality, um, over the next five years, that teams are going to hire way more data engineers and web developers than they are data scientists. They will hire data scientists to be sure, uh, but I think they're going to hire a lot more of those kind of very technical roles. Um, and so, not that not that you should be optimizing for getting a job with a team at any in any role at any cost, but you know, it, if you were someone who had demonstrated ability, you know, against the StatsBomb open APIs that are out there and the StatsBomb open data to build a, a data pipeline and host it on AWS and put it in a data warehouse. I've, I don't think I've ever seen someone do like a portfolio project like that, but you'd have teams knocking on your door left and right. It's uh, it's not sexy, but it's important. Um, uh, I think we've, we've sort of had our veggies here um, <laughs> with, you know, uh, so let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Sprouts. Um, you've, you've, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you've worked in, in, in multiple different sports. Um, as I, you know, as I'm sort of with my, my hands in, in sort of data in different sports now, um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I struggle with it because the, 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 the language is just such a barrier 
Um, was that your experience moving from basketball to soccer? It, it definitely was. It definitely was. And I think, um, you know, basketball is a sport that is relatively discretized at this point, right? Even coaches who can be, you know, quite philosophical. Um, Quinn, Quinn Snyder reminds me of a philosopher king from ancient Greek Greek and Rome because you He's so smart that when you talk to him, you just, the analogies are incredible. Um, but even, even in the bat, you know, the coaches, it's a pick and roll. It's a cut. It's a possession. It's a drive. It's a, it's a handoff, right? It's second and second spectrum, which is now ubiquitous played a big role in that. Obviously, um, soccer on the other hand is even though they've got a nice surface area with passes as this, you know, happens a couple thousand times a game. Um, uh, there's still not that discretization of the, of the game and the way people talk about it, at least in my experience. And so the conversations are very ephemeral, right? Playing out of the back, building up through midfield, you know, wing progressions. Um, and as an analyst, you're trying to say, well, how do I measure that? Right. How do I define playing out of the back. Well, there's certain times when the goalkeeper has the ball that is playing out of the back and there's certain times that it's not right. If they play it long, if they play it short, if the opposition is pressing um, those types of things. And so I think soccer as much as any other sport is still very kind of ephemeral in the way it, people talk about the game. It's part of the beauty of the game. Right. But it certainly for an analyst makes you, you really, you know, in sitting with coaches and scouts, like you're really trying to tie people down to definitions of these things. And you're not, you're not always going to be spot on. So you're oftentimes you're proxying for it because you know what you do and don't have in say event level data or tracking data. Um, but that's part of the fun, I think of the job too, and translating those, those things into data points that you can now measure and rank and, and those types of things. So golf, seems like um something that's almost completely in the other direction and it's um you know baseball is in many ways the the place where a lot of this started because it's it's um, like fundamentally the, the the conflict is fairly simple um golf is even simpler like it's just it, it's not even there's not even an opposition it's just like person interacts with object thing happens yeah so what what is the state of golf analytics and why has it why has it not taken off more and so these are four questions so take them in any order you want uh like uh what are you doing in the space and what does all of this have to tell us to look for this coming weekend at Augusta National sure 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 you know i think um in general the you know mark brody who who coin strokes gained and actually Doug Fearing who predating that coined putts gained uh, in a paper that I'm sure you can find on, on the web, um, you know, gave us our first advanced metric in, in golf golf, like all other sports started with what's the easiest stuff to count. So it started with number of putts, number of fairways, number of greens and regulation up and downs, et cetera. Those things obviously lack context. If you have, if I have 22 putts in a round, I probably didn't hit a lot of greens in regulation. I actually probably didn't score that well. Maybe I made a lot of my par putts, but if I have 35 putts in a round, maybe I hit 18 greens and shot one under. Um, so the context on just number of putts, it's, it's a, it could be a really misleading statistic. Um, and so what strokes gain does is it accounts for that. You know, and I would analogize it to maybe an RPM um, or or equivalent in basketball, where it gives us this nice single value of a, a player's skill overall, and we can decompose it. Um, similar to baseball, we can actually decompose it into five tools: um, distance off the tee, accuracy off the tee, uh, approach to the green, around the green, shipping, and putting. Uh, but even still, that's that's pretty high level, um, and it it's doesn't very video gamey. 
Yeah, it's, you could you could kind of uh, you could kind of easily you know rank. It's a very nice framework to rank and look at players because just like in basketball, you could have two players with similar you know Jokic and Gobert who might have similar impact numbers, although Jokic's are higher. Uh, one is very offensive oriented, one is very defensive oriented, right? So they're similar impacts, but in very different ways. Same thing can be true in golf, where you can have two players who are going to shoot similar scores or maybe have similar overall skill. One is a bomber who's not that accurate. Um, a, a great example is the final of the Dell match play, actually, uh, about a week a week or so ago here in Austin. Uh, the final was Scotty Shuffler against Kevin Kisner. Scotty Shuffler hits the ball country mile and looks like his he looks like he's dancing when he swings it's actually great to see a pro who doesn't look perfectly in control all the time he, he looks like he's swinging hard um kevin kisner is probably a top five putter on planet earth and um doesn't you know accept that he's going to be 30 or 40 yards behind scheffler every hole but they still met in the final and scheffler ended up winning but two very different archetypes of player with, you know, relative and Scheffler is now world number one. So he's, he's better, but, uh, you know, similar overall impacts. Um, and so that kind of brought that strokes gained brought golf analytics into the, the mainstream right now. It's on pgtour.com. You'll see it as you watch the masters this week. Um, it, it, it's, it's an easy way to quickly contextualize, um, you know, how you are at each of those skills. Um, where it goes from here and why it's maybe not a bigger thing. Um, I think there's probably two reasons why it's not a bigger thing is um, there, there isn't, you know, players are going to use this and they're going to keep it under lock and key for most parts, just like a lot of teams will, right? Just like basketball teams and baseball teams are not writing white papers about their models or methodologies. Golfers are going to be the same with the, the individual that I work with where we don't really talk about what our pre-tournament prep looks like. And we don't really talk about, you know, how we use strokes gained um, and, and our different derivations of it. Um, and, and two is just that I think um, the technology is just now catching up and, and allowing us to, so we can now measure you know, the ball down to the inch where it is on every course. Um, and just like it, it took the second spectrum cameras as a hardware um, kind of hurdle inflection point to get through for basketball, shot link in golf um, has really um, allowed and opened up this kind of really, really in-depth analysis. And same as basketball, uh, it's not open, right? You know, if, if, if even you open sourced one tournament of that data uh, with the the minutiae stuff that you kind of get access to behind the curtain, you would see so many, you know, good, good, interesting things come out of it. So there may be something there longer term uh, for the tour to think about to kind of advance the space in general in the way that, you know, Mike Lopez has done with the NFL and, and other things. Just hearing you describe kind of the, 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 the tool, the tools, the toolkit reminds me of, um, Something that came up uh, in, in an interview with someone I ended up hiring for the Bucks. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, he he had he had founded like a sports analytics club at, uh, at at a college, and he had done some of this stuff. And I didn't realize this at the time is that as a coach, like a college golf coach, you have a lot of control over when you're hosting a tournament, how you set up the course. Sure. And so then knowing these characteristics about your players. Um, you basically engineer a home a home course advantage by, okay, well, what what do what do my players do well? Let's let's set up the course to emphasize those things. And oh well, we, we you know we, we we don't hit the ball very far, but we we keep it in the fairway. So let's let's uh, let's make the the course narrow, and and that that'll be to our benefit. Um, so there's there's actually an exact you know version of that in professional golf, and it's the Ryder and Presidents Cups, where uh, the Ryder Cup, U.S. Uh, defeated Europe uh, this last go-around at Whistling Straits in uh, Kohler, Wisconsin. And you see it both in course setup, but also in um, you're going to control the course setup. And if you generally know what your course setup is going to be, that can inform your captain's picks. So the Ryder Cup, for anybody who doesn't know, is um, once every four years, U.S. versus Europe. Um, 
the two years opposite that, there's one U.S. versus rest of the world called the President's Cup, similar formats. Um, and uh, <clears throat> there's a captain who's a, who's usually a former player um, who uh, will decide, will have the final say on, the, there's automatic qualifiers for the team, and then the captain will have final say on the captain's choices, which they can change every iteration, four to six players usually be six auto qualified, six captain's picks as an example. And, uh, there were, you know, there were some decisions on who to, um, choosing the captain's picks last year. And Kevin Na, as an example, had been playing really, really well. He had just won, I think the John Deere, which is at a short tight course in uh, Des Moines. Um, and, Kevin Na's not a long hitter of the ball. He's incredibly accurate. He's a great putter, a great short game. Also very entertaining guy to watch play. Uh, but his game did not suit uh, whistling straights at all, where they knew they were going to make the course long. You were going to have the Brysons and the Kepkas and the Finaus of the world, who are some of the longest hitters of the golf ball on earth. Um, you know, we're going we're gonna to be the types of players on that team. And so Kevin Na, while he might have had even – you know, depending on how you're quantifying it, a higher overall skill than maybe some of the other players who were chosen as captain's picks. He he eventually was not, really to no fault of his own, just the way he uh, the way he made his sausage was, you know, not a great fit for that course. And, you know, the U.S. ended up winning. So if we're going to be results-oriented, all things worked out in the end. Um, but... Uh, there could you could have the inverse of the situation be true, certainly as well. If they were um, if they were going to go play a short, tight course, then um, you know your captain's picks may be may be different. Um, and even going so far as deciding, you know, twenty years twenty years out, which courses are going to host, right? Those decisions are made well well in advance. So there, that's a great example of how you can take in all of this information and, and apply it um, in a competitive advantage situation, which is kind of rare in golf. So the, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of this for kind of the first time. What is the, what is sort of, if, if such a thing exists as sort of a neutral course, what is the, what is the gap between say the best player in the world and the hundredth best player in the world in terms of like what you would expect them to shoot over four rounds? Um, so it's a really, you know, it's a yeah, really even interesting, even ballpark, because yeah. that's, that's a preparatory question for my next one. Um, I, I think the margins are a lot narrower than people would generally think they are. You know, if we, if we think about, um, you know, again, in this con concept of strokes gained and strokes gained per round, um, the, the, the guys who are the best golfers in the world are somewhere in the neighborhood of two, you know, plus two, plus two and a half. I think, um, you know, Tiger at his peak might've been in the threes and low fours. Um, and so here I can actually look at my database real quick and, and see, um, you know, over his, yeah, I mean, over his career, he, um, he might have been, like I said, the threes and low fours. And so, you know, players like John Rahm, players like Scotty Scheffler right now, I think Scheffler right now, if you think about it in, in kind of a, a a time series decay, right, at any given point in time, how good are you? Um, he's he's probably in the neighborhood of, of uh, two or so. Um, and he's number one player in the world. So relative to average, all else being equal, the best player in the world is going to be about a plus two, two strokes around and with a standard deviation of probably at least one. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the, the number 100, the, the margins are so thin. The number 100 player on tour can walk out any day and beat the number one player on tour. Certainly then you overlay, you know, a course that might be more advantageous to one or the other. So these, these margins start being really, really important. And I and, and that's what I was getting at is I wanted to like, like, I, like just in hearing you describe this in my mind's eye, it seems like the difference between a course that is perfectly set up for someone and as bad as it could be for someone is, am, am I wrong in saying that's, that 
is more, multiple times the magnitude of sort of the, um, you know, the hypothetical neutral course gap between, you know, it's a, a huge number of places in terms of the hierarchy. Uh, am I am I wrong in thinking that, or is that am I thinking? No, that the right way? you know, if you you know, you can if, to put it in in for for the uh, the machine learning enthusiast out there, the player skill is the fixed effect, right? You you show up to the course, you can't make yourself better at anything. You 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 know, you're playing with the hand you've the skills you've developed and have over time. You're always you're obviously always trying to improve that, as any athlete is. But when you show up on on game day, that is what it is. The course is the mixed effect, right? It's the it, it's the variable that we're we're throwing in, um, you know. And in general, you're going to see it, it's going to be tenths of a shot is what the overall course effect is going to be for any round. But again, if you're talking about the number one player in the world is plus two with a standard deviation of without knowing it, call it roughly one. Then three one three tenths of a shot is huge. Is a huge number, right? Relative to that, um, the, certainly the margins when you say, well, twentieth in the world to seventieth in the world might be a quarter of a shot or half a shot difference with a, a, a standard deviation of one. All of a sudden, that course effect can have a huge impact, right? Um, and practically, the way this shakes out, um, the the golfer that I work with. Um, I, last season, um, I was like, you, you have to go play it, um, in Jackson, Mississippi in a, in a relatively Sanderson farms invitational or Sanderson farms open, um, relatively low prestige tour event, just a regular weekly event on tours. Like you have to go play there. It's the number one course for you. And he was like, yeah, that's not my schedule. And, you know, of course I'm, I'm the analyst, so I, I don't have to deal with things like what's your schedule and all the other variables <laughs> that go into, you know pay your own money to go fly. And, you know, if you miss the cut, you don't get any money. Um, you know, I can kind of just say statistically you need to go. Um, luckily he went, luckily he made the cut and finished pretty well there. So, um, same thing. There was a tournament in Mexico, which who wouldn't want to play in a professional golf tournament in Mexico, terrible fit for him. And I was like, honestly, you should go and just have vacation instead. Uh, just lay on the beach. Don't play. Um, for for world golf rankings, there's a divisor element. So the num it's not just accumulating money or accumulating points. There is an element of how how well you do per event that you play. So choosing the right events. You know, again, if we're we can choose events that give us plus a third of a stroke per round. Um, that that's going that's going to add up over the course of the season. So th there are real practical implications to these things that are relatively kind of ephemeral machine learning concepts. How, so because of the, the, this, this is, this is, I'm, I'm now getting back into like, you know, poker tournament brain from, mm -hmm. you know, a decade ago or more um, it, because of the sort of the top heavy nature of the payouts in this tournament. Um, is it, is it a challenge to start putting like dollar amounts on, on some of these, some of these, uh, um, like what, the EV of going to this tournament, like the dollars EV of going to the, the advantage of going to this tournament versus that tournament. I mean, that seems like the place you, I mean, maybe that's, that's getting ahead of where we are, but that seems like if you're actually coming down to making these decisions, it's just like, yeah, I want to play in Mexico, but it's the, the expected value is $40,000 higher. In, in earnings to mm -hmm. go to the Southern tournament instead. I'm just thinking out of a hat. I don't, I have no idea like, it, if I'm, if I'm a, a high or low by order, order of magnitude there. Well, the, the point you're getting at, and again, for people who are not as familiar, the, the payouts are super nonlinear as you get to the top, right? And winning the masters this week, you make two, two to $3 million and you get 10th place and you might make, you know, Two hundred thousand um, dollars, and you get to fortieth place, and you'll make you know sixty thousand dollars or or so, give or take, right? So it's, it's super kind of linear, and then just goes um, hyperbolic hockey stick shape. Um, it's sort of like uh, you know you uh, if you play the World Series of Poker, and it's just like, hey, I <laughs> I, I, I made the money, uh, so between between me and the guy who won, we uh, we 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 averaged about uh, 10, yeah, we, yeah. yeah we totaled about ten. It's like yeah, you know. Um, yeah. 
You like, maybe can pay for your hotel room. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're, there was, you're there was last uh, guy in the money at the World Series. Yeah. It, uh, what you know, not to not to tell war stories, but somehow in one of our pickup game ones, I had to guard Vin Baker, which doesn't make any sense at all. But so it's like, yeah, but you know, four All Star games combined in that matchup. So that's yeah. So it's not it's not just the, like the converting the strokes into money. This is this is a problem that we haven't really solved in basketball. We sort of treat wins as linear, but right. the difference between the 45th win that you that a player brings to a team in the 55th win um especially as those probably have like playoff implications or represent playoff implications that's that's anyway that's yeah the same dynamic exists yeah Yeah. i mean it's you know if you can winning one pga tour event is life-changing from someone who you could have a decade-long career um and and Getting into one tournament, you know, there was a guy by the name of Richard Bland, who, unless you're a real golf nut, you've never heard of. He just cracked top 50 in the world. He plays in Europe. He played at the players, um, uh, or excuse me, played in the match play because uh, he's top 64 in the world. Um, and he was a he was a PGA Tour rookie at like 43 years old, right? But getting into the match play, subsequently getting a sponsor's exemption into the Valero. He just missed on world ranking by a week getting into the Masters, right? Um, and so the the implications of winning one tournament um, are huge in terms of you know it, it's it's an eat what you kill. There are no bad contracts on the PGA Tour um, because it it truly is. There are sponsors exemptions and some some nuanced ways to get in on your name or your likeness, but. Generally speaking, you're going to eat what you kill, and um, there are lots of people lined up who want your spot. And so, all of these margins over time really, really add up. You know, if we can add, you know, the analysis that we do on a, when we prep for a week, you know, if we we're we're looking to add marginally half a stroke, a stroke around, um, acknowledging all the uncertainty that someone still has to go out there and hit a little white ball 300 yards. Um, and the wind is different. Um, but those have, I think the number, the research uh, that I've seen somewhere is half a stroke around would equal a 70% increase in earnings, you know, for the average player. And if you go to the top end, the number is larger. Sure. That, that, that makes sense. So Part of part of the reason why we're having this conversation today is it's Tuesday. The Masters yeah. starts on Thursday. Um, yeah. You had a uh, a lengthy uh, <laughs> uh, 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 at least eighteen uh, tweets. Somehow that number is important here. Um, t- uh, talking about some of the uh, the ways in which like the the metrics that we have can be applied to an actual course. So um, just you know, take me through some of that. I thought I mean some of the. Like a lot of the metrics you're tweeting out, like are ones that I had not considered. It's like, oh, but that makes a lot of sense to think of it that way. And it, it seems like sort of the discrete nature of golf leads to a lot of areas where you can kind of, well, if we count this way, we really gain some insight. Yeah. And so I would say a couple of things. It was, it was a lot of fun to put together. And it was the first time I've really studied Augusta in this way but every golfer is so intimately familiar with it. So you're just getting a different lens on it. And the other thing I would say is, you know, each of these kind of individual holes and their stats I pulled out are a little bit meant to be fun as much as they are and approachable as much as they are, you know, the most important thing. It it certainly is not reflective of the type of analysis I would do for a player. If he, he was preparing to play a course, um, namely because we have a lot more, a lot richer data in the, that, that tracking data um, generally, but it's meant to be kind of just look at this course that the golf world is so enamored with and look at it through a different lens. And I think the couple of things that jumped out at me um, is frankly just how hard Augusta is um, in its own, you know, just like golfers have skill and different characteristics, courses have overall dip, difficulty and then different characteristics and um you'll in some of the tweets you'll see that all of the comparables are courses like shinnecock courses like um 
Oakmont, Carnoustie, Aaron Hills, Beth Page, Wingfoot, which are U.S. Opens. And the U.S. Open is regarded as the hardest tournament. And they don't get played every year because the U.S. Open rotates through. Sometimes they'll introduce new courses, but probably a baker's dozen or so courses, Shinnecock, Oakmont, the ones I listed. Um, but you have to play Augusta every year. So Augusta, along with Torrey Pines South Course, which is the Farmers in San Diego, are probably the two hardest courses that the players have to play every year. So I think it was the first thing that jumped out at me. Um, you know, players can play well and in certain conditions go pretty low there, which because they're because they're that good. Um, but the other thing was the characteristics that Augusta and Torrey are very similar in that some of the longest par fours on tour and some of the um, toughest up places to get up and down from. So Augusta's renowned for its greens. The greens are very undulating. Um, they're very fast and they're, you know, obviously perfect in terms of condition. Um, but what's interesting is that in the putting data doesn't show up as much. And what I mean by that is in the putting data at Augusta, we see that good putters putt well at Augusta and uh, average putters putt average and below average putters tend to putt below average. There's no leverage on being an extra good putter at Augusta. It's just sort of, it's just sort of moved the band of, of how many putts you can expect on a given hole. It's like you're, you're going to putt more at Augusta, but everyone's going to putt more. So there's no, it, right. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it hasn't uh, moved the sliders in terms of it the hasn't, yeah. the, 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 the putting coefficient at Augusta is similar to the putting coefficient everywhere else. There isn't a difference where there is one is scrambling, right? Is players who can hit those wedge shots from inside of 50 yards, give or take a lot closer to the hole. And part of that's because you're going to miss more greens because the par fours are longer. Um, holes like uh, 13 are going to have a lot of layups because they're very difficult to get home in two um, as well. And so the, you actually see kind of, extra leverage on being a good scrambler. So if you're a good scrambler, a good wedge player, you're going to get a kind of bonus credit at Augusta for being good at that skill. And if you're a bad scrambler, it's going to hurt you even more. And so this is where, when we start talking about certain courses fit certain players, you know, putting and driving are always important, but which which kind of skills and, and features of the courses have extra leverage or less leverage for that course. And so the two, the two that really jump out as kind of, you know, it, it, you can, it, again, mathematically, it'd be the delta of the coefficient relative to the average coefficient, but is scrambling and, and driving distance at Augusta. You kind of get bonuses. So you know, I'm not in the prognostication business with this stuff, but, you know, for pe I've gotten no less than a dozen text messages this week of who do we like at Augusta? And, um, you know, so we're not, we're not here giving out names. There's, there's too many podcasts that do that already. But again, if you want to decompose a player's skill and how they fit, sure. You still need to be a good putter. You, you can't have a bad putting week and win at Augusta, but good scramblers, long hitters, um, there's no rough at Augusta. So being accurate really has no impact, um, you know, more than anywhere else. And so those are the, those are the skills you're looking at. Um, so if you go on PGA tour and you sort by strokes, gain scrambling and driving distance, right. You can start to get an idea of who might be a good fit at the course. So you're not going to give names, which kind of kicks me in the ass a little bit since I just got an email from my college roommate asking me to join his master's uh, <laughs> pool. So now I, now I'm just donating. So thanks. Thank you, Corey, for, for yeah, helping yeah. me there. Happy to, um, well, look, Seth, I've seen what happens when you rank players um, on, on Twitter. Um, uh, I've, I've seen firsthand what happens. People aren't happy when you do that. So. Well, everyone's, everyone is, is perfectly respectful and engages in the intellectual exercise of it. Um, so is this, I mean, it, it seems like in, in more lay terms, it, it, this, this seems like what you're describing in terms of what's rewarded is part of why the Masters is you know, such a revered tournament is because it sort of rewards and encourages people who can play aggressively. Yeah, it does. Get it, it far, go for the green. Cause if you, if you're a good scrambler and you, you screw up you can, you can save yourself. Whereas, you know, other places that are perhaps more punitive um, that 
that uh, that or players who aren't able to do that as well. Um, that it, it sort of yeah. takes some of the, you know, to win a golf tournament, you have to perform at sort of an outlier level, and you're lopping some of that top end off if you can't play aggressively. Well, and I think you know part of how the course is set up as well um, accentuates that drama a little bit. You know, if we if we think about just how difficult all the holes are and rank them. 13, 15, 16, 14, 17 are all in the easy half of the holes, essentially. 17 is kind of right about a median. Um, But Amen Corner, 13 is a great par 5, 15 is a great par 5, 16, as our uh, our good friend Ken Palm pointed out, uh, he (laughs) thinks is overrated because it's too easy. Uh, And the pin position on Sunday on 16 traditionally is kind of in the bottom of a bowl where if you can get your, your ball will end up near the hole and it can lend itself to hole in ones or near hole in ones, you know, on the third to last hole of, you know, the biggest golf tournament in the world. And so the course is also architected in such a way to accentuate that drama. 13 and 15 have great risk reward where there's water in play, but you can go for the green and two and make an Eagle Um, being a long driver or being a scrambler being a good scrambler is really rewarding on those holes. Um, and so the, I think the course is layout and architecture um, doubles down on that and, and is part of what creates the, the drama. So you're not going to, you don't have any, uh, any predictions. We know that. So I will ask you for some predictions on, on what is, what, what is next in, in sort of the, the study of golf. And it's surprising to me earlier, you said something that the technology is caught up for as as heavily technologized a sport as golf has sort of been. I mean, I think for as long as I've sort of been sentient, there's been worries that, oh, the equipment is... Sure. No, they shoot... Basically, the drivers shoot the ball out of a cannon now. The game is ruined. So, but for as heavily technologized as the game has been, it's... Somewhat surprising to me that there hasn't been more, you know, study of this. Yeah, you know, I think, again, part of it is that, you know, this data, which um, and if you look at these charts, you and if you do any data work, anybody who does data work themselves will understand, okay, well, there's a lot of underlying engineering and underlying, um, you know, just architecture work to get all this stuff to compare every hole of every round in terms of, you know, across 10 years of data, right, is um, it's a data engineering problem. Um, And and I think part of what, given my background and what I've seen with having worked at professional teams, um, not that this would necessarily make it to the the public sphere as much, but, and it's, this has started to take hold, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to take, okay, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers have, million dollar data and technology budgets. No individual golfer is going to have a million dollar data and technology budget. Although if you're at the top end, you could, it's, it's not crazy to think, but we can, you know, this technology scales so well. And these insights are, you know, if you have a framework for thinking about a game, you can apply it to different people. And so that's a little bit of the work I'm doing now is saying, how can I take the learnings and the understandings of how professional teams with billion dollar salary budgets um, across an entire league, um, how can we take that and give it, you know, in a scalable way to professional athletes who play a sport that lends itself so well to analyzing things this way. And, you know, no PGA tour players going to be expected to, be a data engineer or machine learning scientist himself, but the ones I've worked with are all incredibly smart, incredibly curious. Um, and they, they want, again, the margins being so small, you know, you can make a cut on the number and then go shoot a couple of 66s and win a tournament. And if you made the cut on the number, you were one stroke away from not getting to play the weekend. So the margins are just so small. And, and so they want any competitive advantage they can get. And the nature of analytics, um, just, you know, looking at the stuff context aware um, is such that we can provide that. We can add a ton of value by 
doing this. But again, it takes going back to the discussion we had about sports teams and how they maybe should structure their departments or will in the future. It takes all those capabilities, right? It's, there's data engineering, there's machine learning. Certainly there's data visualization, right? I, I tried to make these charts nice and visually appealing. And if you look on my Twitter, you'll see some other ones that are, you know, where, where you get examples of how kind of the, we can overlay shots on a hole. And, and you see that on the telecast, right? Sometimes with like, here are the purdies and pars and bogeys on the hole, but that's just, that's kind of window dressing. And you, when you really dig in, it's a really rich, really well-formed data set. And so, um, you know, all of a sudden you can take what happens on the hole and overlay where your player normally hits the ball and now create really nice customized recommendations for any given hole basically that as long as you have data on it. So um, I, I think, again, just like I think NBA teams are going to have double sized staffs in five years, you know, it would shock me if in a decade, every pro golfer doesn't have, whether it's someone like me, whether it's an agency, whether it's someone through their Callaway and Titleist rep, whether it's someone through, you know, the, uh, the, the stats bombs and zealouses of the world, uh, I would be shocked. You know, it's who knows what form it's going to take, but uh, there is, like I said at the beginning, uh, you, sometimes you hit your head on the fruit because um, there is so much of it. Right. You know, I mean, I would say that that your uh, your charts and tables would be better if if one one small change. And that's if they were radar charts, but that we can we can leave <laughs> that alone for now. Um, the, uh, Maybe Ted would have retweeted me if they were. <laughs> exactly. Um, this is this very inside nerd baseball. Um, let's get back to kind of get, get back to home base for both of us. Uh, mm-hmm. We're about a week away from the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, not to, not to, uh, you know, throw you in, throw you in at the deep end, but what are you looking forward to in the playoffs? Um, other than, other than, you know, a Desmond Bain scoring explosion in the first round. Look, look, if, if, if we can get Adam Stanko in here, or if Adam Stanko's out there, he knows my my love for Desmond Bain. And about eighteen months ago, it's I've got receipts on a podcast somewhere out there, Stanko. But um, but yeah, I mean, right there, right? Memphis is is a phenomenal story, and they're going to be two three. I don't know if they're locked into two yet, but two three in the West, and you know, all their contributing players are on rookie scale deals, essentially. Um, not all of them, but a lot of their key players are on rookie scale deals. And it's like, gosh, is this team going to be together? If Robert Perra is willing to pay the bill, that team's going to be together another decade. Um, you know, really there's, you would, you would have a better opinion on this than me, Seth, but in the East is the, the drama soap opera that it is. Um, and then Boston has just all of a sudden decided they're really good at basketball. But, uh, you know, as wide open as it ever feels like, I kind of feel like we say that a lot, but I actually believe it this time. Um, I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but. I, there's that, but it also, there's there's this feeling of, I don't know. Uh, like we, 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 for whatever reason, we think of things in trilogies and it does feel like, with the prospect of like a normal length off season coming and we've crammed so much basketball into 20 months or 20 months. Yeah. That this, it it feels like just like getting to the finish line here. And, and you know, it's, it's uh, not even a marathon. It's like the hundred K race walk that (laughs) that this feels sort of like we're there because part of the reason it feels so wide open is you just, you know, you mentioned Boston, like Boston was the best team in the league. And then like, maybe their second most player, important player gets hurt. Right. Uh, and like, you know, the, the Warriors, what, what's Steph going to have? Um, do, do, do random guys who suffered ACL injuries last year suddenly start showing up on the court yep. from Denver? What does Chris Paul do? Yeah. Well, I mean, does, Same does, thing. Does, yeah, does Chris Paul, like ha- having a month and a half off, does that turn out to be, and we, I talked about this with the, with uh, Gerald Bogey yesterday is is like what seemed like it could be a problem for the Suns, maybe even turned into a benefit in that, okay, they they rolled without Chris Paul and he got a nice long vacation for a guy who tends to wear down in the postseason. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, mm-hmm. I just I I I I don't know. Like I it's it's for all the I don't know. I think the most likely outcome is a finals rematch, which is funny, but you know, no one knows what's going to happen, but it's going to be the same as last. Well, year, you're not so. you're not biased at all in that prognostication. One I, I don't think I am. I think no. I, I think you I'm, do a pretty good job of disguising it, at least. <laughs> I hate I hate everyone's favorite team equally. Um, yes, that's, that's right, and their players too. Yeah, well, no, the, the play, there's definitely players that I will I will cop to hating more than others, but we won't talk about that now. Um, yeah, no, it's it's um it, it's an it is a. It's a weird year, and also just like I don't know if it's it's the it's the sort of the, still the pandemic dynamic, or just the natural progression of just the regular season just not being representative of what we're going to see starting next week. It's it is, you know, and it it gets it gets parroted a lot around the league, and and I don't know how much it's common knowledge outside of it, but it it might as well be a different sport, right? And I think. What is much what's so more exciting? so than it used to be? I think, though, I think that's something that that has it's it was said for a long time, and it really like no, actually, if you kind of if you do some analysis of regular season results, you get you you get a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in, in the playoffs. Um, you have to you be smart about it, but I just I I feel like that. Well, when's the last time? When's the last time you had teams potentially trying to fade the one seed? Right. You know, and, and that that's your point. It's um, and I actually think. You know, to tie it all back in, analytics, but just as something as simple as second spectrum and not simple. It's it's a very complex product, but that's, again, now over the last five to seven years is ubiquitous in every video room. How much has that advanced the, you know, the matchups and the chess matches that happen, right? And you look at teams with very distinct styles of play, again, t- overall skill and style, you know, sometimes style can trump, right? Yeah. And if, you know, if uh, if Utah plays certain teams versus others, it's not about necessarily the top-down skill and let me just play, I, I want the worst team as my matchup. There may be certain teams that are better matchups than others. And I think, to your point, it has become more prevalent over the last half decade or so. And I think, you know, just the prevalence and availability of more information right about things like pick and rolls and about things like tendencies um and the ability to iterate off of those very quickly is is a big part of the reason why and i think it's a little even a little um i don't know if it's some of the subtleties are as well understood like everyone's sort of known okay try to get like the other team's bad defender switched off onto lebron and then that happens. Like that's that's sort of the yeah. blunt force way of doing it. Yeah, sure. But, but I remember seeing some analysis from like the Phoenix Denver series last year. And it ended up not being a close series, so these so these kind of intricacies didn't really matter. But it wasn't. They were Denver. Uh, uh, Phoenix was targeting Michael Porter Jr. And they weren't targeting him by trying to get him on the ball. They were targeting him by running a set where, all right, if he is in this spot in the action he's going to screw up. Either he's going to lose his man and give up an open shot, or he's not going to help and give up a layup or something. So it's like the, the third or fourth person in action that they've identified that this is a spot that a, that a defender is weak on. Is just is and, and there's just so many ways where you can do that 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 isn't that that's much more than just like, oh wow, he's a he's a he's a lousy on ball defender, so we'll just run pick and rolls until they switch. Which is sort of the, you know, that's yeah, been, that's the one hundred and one since like nineteen eighty-eight or whatever. But the, but no, the I mean, ability to just like chisel out those those little weaknesses. Well, and again, right? I mean, and you talk about it in the book, but you know, nowadays ninety points are you kind of start the game at ninety to ninety, right? And and the last twenty, the last marginal twenty is what matters, and so you know that's twenty possessions, give or take, and that's. Um, all of a sudden, these margins, same thing we're talking about with golf, these margins start to, to matter a ton. I mean, you look at the, the Utah Clippers game five or game six last year, and if, if you said if you said to someone, well, we're going to make Terrence Mann beat us, that's a pretty sound strategy given who else is on the floor for the Clippers. But sometimes sometimes those things can happen, right? A sliding, just a, a sliding doors moment. In that. Is he, so he, he made his first two threes that game. 
And part of the reason why they kind of have that is not just that he was a, he is, a, he is a, he's an okay shooter. He's a reluctant shooter. So mm-hmm. he makes his first two, the ball's going up every time he touches it now because he feels good. He misses the first two and all of a sudden he, you know, he, he pauses, he record scratches. Like the entire game is, the, the way the entire game plays is so different. Well, and that's where, you know, we, we love this debate in our space. Momentum doesn't exist. But but what does exist is altered decision making under different circumstances, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's 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 a great example of that. And he, like I mean, almost literally, he's a he's a different player having made those first two shots than he would have been had he missed them. And so, how right. you choose to defend that? How, like anyway, that's that, I feel like that like the Terrence Mann explosion game has been litigated to death. Um, and <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble by asking your your deepest darkest opinions of of Utah's coverages in in that series. But uh, yeah, um, anyway, I've uh, I've I've kept you for just over the hour that you promised me. So um, you know, if, if uh, anything you want to plug in terms of your golf stuff, now would be a great time to do it. I know. I don't really have anything to, to plug. It's it's uh, always fun to hang out uh, with you, Seth. I mean, I, if people are interested in it, I, I, I tweet pictures about golf. So there's there's the plug, I guess. Um, and if you have questions, as long as they're not about players, I'll I'll try to answer them. Um, yeah. Well, cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, and th- thanks for for listening. I'm actually back tomorrow uh, since I'm on I'm on the not basketball kick right now. I'm talking to uh, uh, Aussie Rules uh, analyst uh, Binek uh, Kodiruwaku tomorrow. He's a, a friend of mine I've gotten to know from from down under, who's over in the states for a bit, and we're going to talk some uh, some Aussie rules and how that uh, analysis of that sport relates to some that we might be more familiar with. So uh, hopefully join, uh, join me then for that and uh, talk to you all again soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Seth.